competition they're looking for, they win. Ignore them, you win. Welcome, everyone. I am Ari Ingle, the Director of Creative Community for Peace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for anyone joining us for the first time, Creative Community for Peace is a nonprofit entertainment industry organization comprised of prominent members of the entertainment community who have come together to promote the arts as a bridge to peace, to counter anti-Semitism within the entertainment industry, and to galvanize support against the cultural boycott of Israel. To learn more about our work and to support our work, please visit ccfpeace.com, that is ccfpeace.com, or creativecommunityforpeace.com. We are glad to have all of you with us today in our public square and joining us for this installment of our Dispelling the Myth series, which is an educational series of conversations with some of the leading experts on the issues and challenges facing Israel and the Jewish people today. Today, we're gonna to be discussing one of the most audacious lies leveled at the State of Israel, the apartheid lie. Uh, in a calculated campaign, the anti-Israel movement has shifted from calling Israel an occupier to now referring to it as an apartheid state. To unpack this political weapon, we have two leading experts with us today who have been working to counter this charge. Please feel free to leave questions in the Q&A section of the chat, and we will try to get to many of them as possible towards the end of the discussion. I would first like to introduce Ann Herzberg, who is the legal advisor for NGO Monitor. She is a graduate of Oberlin College and Columbia University Law School. Prior to joining NGO Monitor, she worked as an attorney in New York. Her areas of research include business and human rights, international human rights law, the law of armed conflict, universal jurisdiction, international fact-finding, NGOs, and the UN. Anne's articles and op-eds have appeared in many publications, including the American Journal of International Law, Haaretz, the Jerusalem Post, Ynet, and the Wall Street Journal. She is also the author of many widely cited research reports on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, including the recently published The Elusive Definition of Apartheid, a historic and legal analysis of a libel against the Jewish state. Welcome, Anne. Um, next, hey. we have Olga Mishwe Washington, who was born and grew up in South Africa and is now based in America. She is the CEO of DEISI International, a board member of the Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel, and the National Director for Programming Engagement at Club Z. She is an internationally sought after speaker on combating the Israel apartheid lie, African relations with Israel, and the Christian mandate to stand with Israel. Uh, in 2016, Olga received the Jerusalem Award from the World Zionist Organization in recognition of her advocacy for the state of Israel. And her essay, The Apartheid Lie, was published in the book, Israel Phobia and the West, The Hijacking of Civil Discourse on Israel and How to Rescue It. Welcome, Olga. Thank you very much for having me. It's great Hello. to have both of you here. Um, time is short, so let's get right into it. To start, Olga, you were born in South Africa, and I believe your father is even part of the parliament there. Can you please tell us uh, what the definition of apartheid was in South Africa between 1948 and 1994, and describe what life was like for Black people living in South Africa under apartheid? Yes, sir. So my father actually now is a member of the South African government, which is one of the things that would have never happened in apartheid South Africa. The term apartheid, and we need to stop there, it is actually an Afrikaans word, which comes from the Afrikaners who were the Dutch that had come to um, South Africa in the early 1900s, the late late 1800s, early 1900s, and pretty much colonized us. And in their journey of colonization, there was this 
attitude, this um, way of thinking that the white man was morally and also racially superior than the black person, than the non-white person. And so what we saw was an amalgamation of laws, over 150 codified laws that separated black life from white life in every single regard. Right purely because of the color of our skin. And one of the ways that I also break it down when I teach our teens is because they did not see us as equals. We did not have even the emotional or the mental capacity to do what the white person would do. So not only could we not go to the same schools, the education that was created for us was deliberately dumbed down because there was no need for us to be able to learn so that we could become doctors, engineers, and those type of things. Um, you talk about access to medical health. We were separated in those regards. The most basics, can you go to the beach uh, together with somebody who's of a different race? Absolutely not. Can you use the same drinking fountain, water fountain? Absolutely not. Do you go to the same restaurant? If you do, Black people are going to use a different entrance and they're going to sit in a separate area of the restaurant and they're going to eat on different utensils. Um, if you think also just with regards to where we could live and how we could live, we were removed from our initial homelands and or other initial places of, of living in across the country and segregated not only based on the color of our skins, but also our tribe. An interesting fun fact, and then I'll end it there because there's many stories that I can use to describe living as a black person in apartheid South Africa. I won't forget when I was applying for my green card here in the United States, I called my dad. I said, dad, I'm looking at my birth certificate. I was born in the capital of South Africa, which is Pretoria, but my birth certificate did not assign me South African citizenship. I was like, dad, I'm not a South African citizen. And he was like, no, you are. I'm like, I'm not. Look at my birth certificate. And so what was fascinating is that here was living proof that in that particular period, there was a distinct and a deliberate effort to uh, remove Black people from living within South Africa and create these homelands. The intent was to not only separate Black people from South Africa, but create a pure country where there were no Black people. And so even though I was born in South Africa, I was assigned citizenship, which was the intended um, effort to try and have my family relocate me there um, to a place called Baputatuana. So black life was separate from white life in every regard. You couldn't vote. You didn't have a say over who governed you. You, could, you didn't have a say over where and how you could work. That was apartheid. Right. So complete separate and apartness, I guess, was uh, where the word comes from. So, Anne, during this, South, uh, this the South African apartheid era, just to discuss some of the historical roots behind the apartheid charge and how it was leveled at Israel at this time. Um, it, you know, it comes from some of the, the Soviet area and the Arab bloc and the UN. Um, and there was this intentional link to, to link South Africa and apartheid to Israel. Can you talk a little bit about those initial historical roots? Yeah, sure. So I'm really happy to be here. Um, basically, the apartheid slander of Israel began as a political move by the Arab states, probably in the late 50s, early 60s. And really what they did is they were very smart. They capitalized on, um, in UN frameworks, there were a few isms that were really like the worst scourges going on at the time. So you had colonialism, racism, Nazism, anti-Semitism. So what they recognized was they decided to put Zionism in alongside these scourges. And now also at the same time, so the apartheid practices of the apartheid state started earlier, but as Olga was mentioning, in 1948 is when the regime became official. And so around that time, 
um, the Arab states started to accuse Israel and particularly Zionism, the right to the Jewish people to self-determination as being one of these isms alongside racism and Nazism and anti-Semitism. Right. Then when um, during the politics of the Cold War, Israel originally was um, not seen as hostile to the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union thought it could maybe bring Israel into its orbit. Um, but around the late 50s with Pan-Arabism and then the Arab states started to get closer to the Soviet Union. And then also along with the decolonization movement of the 50s and 60s, a lot of those countries were captured by the Soviet bloc. And so the Soviets, uh, for propaganda purposes, really to get after the United States, um, started to really spread the Zionism is apartheid, Zionism is racism. Right. The apartheid claim is just a more extreme form of Zionism is racism. And so that's really where we started to see it, you know, really mm -hmm. uh, get away. Yeah. Right. I mean, exactly. one of the worst things any country could be is an apartheid state. So uh, if exactly. Zionism is racism, they take it a step further. And Olga, I want to talk about the 2001 Durban conference. And Anne, you can jump in here, too. Because this was not only when, you know, the BDS movement was really launched, but the UN-sponsored conference was used as a label to label Israel as an apartheid state in South Africa, uh, which I think is very intentional. Can you explain, Olga, a little bit what happened in Durban? And once again, Anne, maybe you can add uh, anything as well. So 2001, the United Nations hosts in South Africa a conference that is supposed to be talking about how to combat racism right. and xenophobia and all of these very, very real issues that exist across the world. And so bringing together NGOs, there was also youth forum that happened, and then obviously the main um, body of heads of states representing um, their countries within the United Nations. But then what happens is not only do you have, um, and more specifically with regards to the, the NGOs that were present, um, a fest of, you know, Jewish hate. There were protests outside um, on the streets, which were orchestrated, deliberately orchestrated, where you had very anti-Semitic tropes that were being said. Um, one of the declarations that was passed in Durban, first of all, in relation to the NGO forum, that's where the term in terms of its actual formality came that um, Israel is a racist apartheid state right. that was not just racist and apartheid, but it was also committing a genocide. Um, and then within the, the formal uh, UN forum, even though racist apartheid wasn't used, um, only Israel was singled out as being this, this racist entity against which there needed to be um, action that was done. So it pretty much, in my opinion, you know, some people talk about it being hijacked. I would be very curious to hear what, what Anne says, but I think, especially if you look at some of the meetings that happened in the run-up to that particular conference. There was a deliberate strategy to actually make this about um, calling Israel an apartheid state. And why in South Africa? Well, South Africa is the birthplace of apartheid. South Africa is the only place in the world where this happened. And so having that particular narrative really come to the fore um, at the birthplace of apartheid gives it or gave it um, at least this moral legitimacy. Right. Um, and so almost like a stamp of approval that this is truth. Right. Yeah, I just want to add, yes, at the prep comms for the conference was one of them was in Tehran where Jews and Israelis were actually barred from participating. And at that prep com, that's where all of these documents came about, where they basically called Israel an apartheid state. And then at the last, so this was in the declaration all the way up to the beginning of the conference, was in, began in September 2011, 2001. 
And so the EU got at the last minute, the language removed from the main conference documents. However, it migrated into this NGO document. But also what was notable about the NGO document is this was the beginning of the BDS movement. So what they said is we need to start a campaign against Israel like that we used to destroy apartheid in South Africa. And so they called for the complete and total isolation and boycott of Israel culturally, militarily, economically, politically, diplomatically. And so this was where it began. Um, right. So that, that's a really um, important thing that people should know about. Right, right. It was labeling not only Israel an apartheid state, but calling for a full divestment boycott and sanctions of Israel at the exactly. CGO forum. And I think that, that is something I think people need to understand because we deal a lot with BDS, that this wasn't started you know, by Omar Baragudi, this was yeah. a very calculated campaign started by these uh, NGOs uh, in the run-up and then at this conference. So the next sort of like uh, evolution of this charge, which is something you've dealt with a lot, uh, and um, mm -hmm. are the special rapporteurs of the United Nations, John Dugard, okay. Richard Falk, and now we're very timely with Michael Link, who is releasing a report Thanks. tomorrow at the UN where he calls Israel a, a covetous alien power that must yeah. abandon the fever dream of settler colonialism and recognize the freedom of indigenous people. This is literally in his port tomorrow and labeling yes. Israel an apartheid state. So can you just discuss these the, the roles of these people, these supposedly neutral members of the UN, and um, also just touch also on how they've sort of... Uh, worked at changing the language of Israel from emphasis on occupation to using the word apartheid instead? Yeah, sure. So first, I just want to say the words apartheid and occupation in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Israeli-Arab conflict, are kind of what I call weasel words, right. because they are legal terms, but they're also political terms, and they can mean different things to different people. So when you say occupation, let's say in our context or in America, um, people generally think of the West Bank when they hear occupation. But in the Arab world, to Palestinians, when you say occupation, you're talking about Haifa and Tel Aviv. So, um, it, and the same thing with apartheid. When you say apartheid, maybe most people think, well, okay, Israel, but what's going on in the West Bank? So again, it's these types of weasel words. And, they're, and, the, and the people running the strategy are very familiar with that and, and aware of what they're doing. Now, the UN appoints what are known as special rapporteurs, these independent experts. Um, when it comes to the Palestinian experts, it's the only expert that um, the mandate, all the other mandates, there are 75 of these mandates of the Human Rights Council, they all have to be renewed every year. The one for the Palestinians never expires. Wow. It never has to be renewed. It just will exist until the end of the occupation. Right. Uh, okay, so it's always there, which is Haifa, which is Haifa and Tel Aviv, as you're discussing. Exactly. Exactly. For many of the countries that vote on who the rapporteur is, um, it's always an anti with one exception. It's always an anti-Israel ideologue, a BDS activist. Michael Link is actually leaving his position in a couple of weeks. And the replacement is also someone in this exact vein. Uh, anti-Israel campaigner, um, you know, lots of uh, anti-Israel events, works with, you know, terrorized NGOs. That's the profile of the person that takes this job. They have to be approved by the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the Arab League. Um, so this is not a neutral 
person. Right. So uh, the, the first rapporteur was this man, John Dugard, who is a South African academic, but really took it upon himself to start going after Israel back in the 80s. Um, and he was the first person that kind of like um, used legal language to, to try to shift the legal debate towards Israel in 2007. And since then, all of his successors have done the same thing, all of them in their last report as rapporteur. So, you know, when they claim like, oh, this is a new thing, growing consensus, right. it's all the same people. When you look at all the people making this charge, it's the same 20, 30 people all along. They, you know, since, since Durban, um, and they're saying the same thing. There's no new, you know, this is just a narrative they're trying to sell, but it's right. the same people, the same language. Um, you know, it's just based on, I think based because our political environment has become so partisan, unfortunately, in the past few years, it's maybe gotten more media attention than it has in the right. past. And, and this is all under the Human Rights Council, right? Yes. These, right. yes. Which so is, I'm, I'm actually speaking tomorrow at the at the debate when Link is presenting his report. So I'll um, hopefully be able to get a few singers in. But uh, yeah, <laughs> but a, we're, we're all rooting for you. <laughs> um, and so this this sort of brings us to these current charges of apartheid. In 2020, the Israeli group Yesh Din began using the term. We had Human Rights Watch label an apartheid state 2021. Beit Selim, another Israeli group, adopted it last year. And then this year we had Amnesty. So Olga and then and maybe Anne, what 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 was in what was this charge? And like, is it a coordinated campaign between them? Like, are all of these organizations just randomly all of a sudden now deeming Israel to be apartheid state? Or do you think that this is some sort of more coordinated campaign? And maybe more um, able to speak to the, the nuance and the legal aspects of it. But on a on a very superficial reading, when first of all you look at the timing of it, and then secondly, you look at how each of the reports, and I'm now more specifically referring to the Human Rights Watch report that was released last year, and then the Amnesty report that was released earlier this year, it's almost like how they, they build on each other, if I can say um, in the most respectful way, but most um, sarcastic, sarcastic way as well, in their absolute fallacious statements. I mean, I, uh, one of the reasons why I was excited to participate on, on this platform today was the legal aspects of it and, and getting my brain, you know, thinking in, in legal terms. And you read this document and it's fascinating with regards to the legal gymnastics that they use, the deliberate um, misinterpretation, misapplication of of international of international law and its principles. Um, one of the things that for me is fascinating about, like I said, these last two reports is how they, how they um, create intent Right? They put intent on Israel with regards to the fact that Israel is a Jewish state. And because Israel is a Jewish state, and um, despite the fact that there's so many diverse types of people, not only living within it, but doing very well within it in all areas of life, because it's a Jewish state, it must mean that it has the intent to dominate over other groups. And so because of that, it has to be an apartheid state. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Right. And I guess so, Lan, uh, Anne, from a legal perspective, where do these NGOs get their definition and this claim of apartheid under international law? I don't want to get too in the weeds on, on the legal side, but I think yeah. it's important, you know, briefly, like, what what is you know the international convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination like where are they pulling this definition from and where do they are, are seeking the legitimacy under international law for their claims yes yeah, sure so what actually what's very surprising and when i started doing my research i have a co-author and we've issued two reports on this that i can put the links in the chat for people we just released a report a few days ago about it our second report um so even though, as we all know, and as certainly as Olga knows, 
Apartheid was one of the, the worst human rights crimes of the 20th century. But surprisingly, there was not a legal definition of it. So um, there, it's mentioned in several treaties, but like one of the treaties, the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination says apartheid is prohibited, but they give no definition of what that means. And then you have the Convention on Apartheid, which was actually a Cold War kind of document. So none of the Western countries adopted it because the Soviets really kind of tried to draft a document that would go after Western countries. So only the Soviet bloc had adopted this treaty in 1973. Um, but that definition, plus there's the International Criminal Court statute has a definition of apartheid. Um, those definitions are not the same. And they use words like domination, oppression, inhumane acts. And when you look at the words domination and oppression, those are also not defined. So what does that mean? And then also we have to realize what um, there are different, when we talk about apartheid, there are different prohibitions. So there's a state prohibition where states are not allowed to engage in that practice, but there's also the crime against humanity of apartheid, which is an individual crime. So only individuals can be tried for that. And those are, and those are very different standards. A state prohibition is very different from a individual criminal prohibition. So again, floating around in all these instruments, you have about four, maybe about four definitions. So what these NGOs have done is they've kind of picked and mashed them all together right. and, and in order to create this Franken definition right. uh, specifically to target Israel. Right. So, uh, and it really so it's takes like sort of taking the Rome, the Rome statute, the Geneva conventions, and sort of just picking and choosing something that they can just fit onto right. Israel. And then also mixing up the state prohibition rules versus the international, the individual criminal rules, which are very different. And the standards are completely different, like for criminal law versus human rights law. So right. are again, Amnesty and Human I'm Rights Watch, are they even using the same definition themselves or are these um, organizations? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much like basically what happened was in 2009, there was a group of activists who John Dugard kind of spearheaded this, um, they came up with this very lengthy report and they came up with their definition. HRW and Amnesty essentially copied this report. I mean, you know, they added some new dates and some new details, but when you read all three of these reports, they're all about the same length, the same structure, you know, it's, they're essentially identical. Um, and they're basically all using kind of the same definition. Like, slight variations here and there but but essentially it's the same right so so what is this new definition of apartheid that they are using and how does it differ from the south african version before we sort of get into how it applies to israel well i i would say there's a couple things they're doing that's very sneaky so first is when you look at the only case of apartheid we know about is that of south africa right okay and so there is an issue in international law. You, when you're talking about apartheid, then you need to look at what happened in South Africa, the types of things that Olga was talking about. So, but what Amnesty and HRW are trying to do is decouple South Africa from apartheid. So right. like, no, we don't need to look at what happened in South Africa. That doesn't matter. 
this is a totally, you know, this is a completely separate issue. We, we don't, we don't have, they have to be kind of like what happened in South Africa, but right. they can basically, they basically just make up whatever they want. Um, the other thing that they're doing is they are, again, what was the biggest aspect of apartheid South Africa? Race, right. discrimination between races. That is not what is going on in our conflict, but they are trying to impose that on our conflict. So that's another huge difference. And then the third big difference I will say is that the HRW and Amnesty are using the word domination. They're making that synonymous with the word control. So anytime you have a more powerful actor, that is synonymous with apartheid. You know, so it could even be America and Mexico. America is a more right. powerful actor. So what they're, why are they doing this? Because occupate, you know, and so they, in their paradigm, you know, there's an right. occupation going on. Um, occupation is not illegal under international law. And that, that is their problem <laughs> because, because it is not illegal. They now need to come up with a new term right. to try to make it illegal. And that's, so that's what they're doing. So that's why they want to make it like control because when you're in a situation of occupation, you have a situation of control. Right, and so the, right, so the, right. When talking about law of armed conflict, occupation is right. actually, it's a legal thing. There are certain things that right. occupying power has to do and, and cannot exactly. do, but it's actually a legal structure, uh, which, and apartheid is an illegal st structure, right? And they're almost sort of trying to conflate the two together because exactly. occupation is legal and Israel has been trying to get its way out of it for a very long right. time. So. Let's not use that because I guess that is legal. Let's just say they're apartheid now, right? Right. And also they, so in, when you were asking about the coordination, in 2013, there was a very interesting conference that took place at Beersate University in the West Bank with John Dugard, Richard Falk, a bunch of NGOs and the Palestinian Authority officials. And what was the conference about? Switching from an occupation paradigm in our messaging to apartheid. There was a right. big fight about it. And they decided because apartheid is much more powerful um, and has much more resonance. Visceral, visceral reaction to the word apartheid. Exactly. We really need to switch how we're talking about this conflict. Right. And that's what happened. And that's right. where we are today. Right. And then on social media, you see that playing out. You don't see the word right. occupation. You see the word apartheid genocide. So, Olga, you know, this apartheid discourse it's clearly not merely to criticism or attempt to improve Israel policy, right? Rather, it's used by these NGOs and these UN officials to construct a narrative that presents Israel's very existence as a Jewish state as illegitimate. In these reports, there's no, you know, there's no other side. They don't mention Hamas. They don't discuss peace deals or attacks in Israel. So, you know, what essentially is the purpose of these reports? Bottom line, it's Jew hatred. Uh, right, right. differently it's to to see the demise of the of the only jewish state and the only jewish democratic state you know we were talking about um conflations of various things if you looked at apartheid south africa it happened within a particular country in relation to the citizens and the peoples of that country in these reports we're also seeing the conflation of palestinian and arab life at the occupied territories um or the disputed territories in israel proper and then also in gaza so you know not only is there this mismatch in relation to legal terms there's also this mismatch with regards to the reality on the ground and to the point that you've just raids um the very real uh 
Palestinian leaders who are in authority, whether we see that authority is legitimate or not, they have a very, very big role in how the Palestinians are experiencing life. Right. To totally exclude them from the conversation with regards to, oh, let's better um, the living conditions as they may purport do not exist of the, of the Palestinian people and ignoring them is, is, is anti-Semitic. And also you may recall, if let me not assume, but those people who were watching the demonstrations doing apartheid South Africa, when people were on the streets and going free South Africa, their intention and then what ultimately happened in 1994 and the years thereafter was the dismantling of these oppressive laws and the system with the intention that all the people in South Africa should be seen as equal, that all the people should live together. There wasn't this, this desire that if you were um, not black, you then had to leave the country and the country then should only take on a black nature. What we see now, however, especially as, as people chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, right. is actually let's just do away with the Jewish state and right. nothing other than accomplishing that is going to satisfy them. Right. That is essentially uh, one of the heads of amnesty in America, uh, um, I forgot his name, O'Brien, recently just came out and said that Jews don't really need a state. And somehow uh, someone that's not Jewish decided that he spoke for all of Jews when saying they'll be fine with no state. And uh, th that, that should be the future of Israel should be dismantled, essentially. Well, or at least he was he was being transparent. Right. right? He was right. being truthful because that's what we are. So he came out. So I applaud him and be like, thank you for telling us what you really are about. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, we had a not wolf on the other day and she talked about West planning where for some reason, people in the West do not take these anti-Israel activists, these people that, you know, uh, promulgate Jew hatred for their at their word. They sort of trying to explain away what they really meant. And he was very open and blunt. Um, so just to get into some more details of what's really going on, let's go through the main four areas where Palestinians live in the land between the river and the sea. So Olga, in the West Bank, there's areas A, B, and C. Can you discuss these areas and if the charge of apartheid could apply to any of these areas? So areas A, B, and C um, came about in high-level summary from the Oslo Accords. So it's an agreement between um, the, the Palestinian leadership, uh, the Palestinian Liberation Organization at the time. And you know, the intention is let us create a system where ultimately the Palestinian people will have their own um, governance, will have their own their own um, place, their own state to live. Um, but recognizing how there was on the ground differencing in population between Jews and Arabs, they're like, okay, area A, we are going to give um, administrative as well as security administration, um, I mean, authority to the Palestinian Authority and then in area B. And what's interesting and many people don't know is that 90% of the Palestinian people live there. Right, so that's where the great majority of the Palestinian people live. And then area B, let's share um, because there's an appreciation of real security risk uh, to, to Israel proper. And so Israel now then has um, security control and then the Palestinian uh, Authority has administrative control. And then area C is where Israel has, has all of that. So uh, has both security as well as administration. And so you have the, this different power system that's going on. First of all, it's by agreement. One right. of the things that I say to people is that if you don't like the agreement, get everybody around the table and let's have them discuss, right? right? That's what happened in South Africa when apartheid, um, when apartheid finally came down. Negotiating parties came around the table and said, what do we need to do? To then say that this is purely Israeli policy um, and Israeli governance is a, is a blatant lie. Right. And until we then remove this lie, actually addressing what people see, and some people do, um, of the Palestinian suffering, we're not going to get that right. So it is incorrect to see it as apartheid because the, 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 the legal structure within which this um, exists 
was agreed to, and that's not apartheid. Right. It was agreed to between the Israelis and Palestinians at Oslo right. for all areas of control. So you have joint control in B, Palestinian control in A and in C. I think as me and Anne were just talking a moment ago, you have the rules of armed conflict essentially applying there where, you know, there's where occupation is a, is a legal term and there's certain things that go along with that and shouldn't be conflated um, with the term apartheid, which is a, a totally different term. So, and in Israel proper, uh, the anti-Israel activists and these groups like to point and claim that there's over 65 laws that discriminate against the Arab population. I think they like to do that almost because, in, you know, make it seem like it's South Africa once again. And this has been the case since 1948. In, in their view, the epitome of this is the nation state law and the law of return. So what do you say in response to this uh, and the claims that apartheid exists in Israel proper? So I'll just say on that list of the 65 laws, we actually on our, we debunked that list a few years ago. I, I forget the exact percentage. It was a very high percentage are actually not even laws. Right. They were proposals that were never adopted. <laughs> so right. many, if not most are not even laws. Um, second, secondly, another vast chunk of those laws were things like promoting cult, Jewish culture or the fact that Hebrew is an official language, like they were calling those types of things discriminatory laws. So when you dig down into it, even it's pretty absurd. But yeah, I mean, the thing that they're trying to do in Israel, these NGOs, is they're really trying to attack the fundamentals of a Jewish state and what makes Israel a Jewish state. And what they're forgetting is the international community this is the solution the international community came up with from the very beginning of the conflict. The Peel Commission, the UNSCAP, uh, before in 1947, the Partition Plan at the UN. This has been the internationally endorsed solution to the conflict from the very outset to have a Jewish state. And but these NGOs are trying to reverse history. And so um, they focus on things like the law of return and they actually, they fabricate things about it. So they claim, oh, that is Jews and non-Jews are having different citizenships, which is completely false. There are different paths to get citizenship, but once you have that citizenship, you are not, you are not treated any differently. You are subject to the same laws and the same benefits, regardless of your ethnicity. Um, and many countries have this type of thing where the diaspora of their countries, Ireland, Germany, Spain, Portugal, uh, Finland, Slovakia, Hungary, I mean, you can go on and on and on, um, allow, give preferential paths for diaspora members to maintain their connection with those countries and to give them a, a different track in order to obtain citizenship. So this is not anything that is unusual in the world. The fact that Israel calls itself a Jewish state, it's because it's a majority Jewish state. That's what it is. It's a descriptor right. of what the state is. Just as there are 56 Islamic countries, there are, um, I believe, around 60 Arab countries. They call themselves Arab state. Uh, you know, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the, uh, you know, right. all of these. Or now throughout Europe, there's nation states. Exactly. Christian, right, they have an official religion, they're Christian states, they have the cross on their flags. Uh, right. This is not a problem for any, any. these NGOs have no problem with any of these other countries, but there's one country in the world where it's suddenly a problem that 
the majority of the people in that country are Jewish and want to recognize the fact that it's a Jewish country, you know, so right. that's really it, what it's it almost from. used as to like play up on the fact that people in America don't really understand the European dynamic of nation states. And I guess, exactly. I, I don't know, maybe people in America aren't traveled enough to understand that most of the world is built up of nation states. And it's not an yeah. unusual thing, especially in Europe. Um, and there's also polls that have shown that Israeli Arabs, I think around 77%, said that they like living in Israel. And I, I believe under the Trump plan, where there was actually some idea where a couple uh, villages near the, the border of the West Bank would perhaps be part of the new Palestinian state. And the Arab Israelis said, absolutely not. We are not going to live um, as part of uh, some new Palestinian state. We, we like living in Israel. Um, and not to mention, you know, there's uh, members of parliament, members of the governing coalition. We have um, Supreme Court justices that are from the Arab community. Um, you know, in all sectors of life, the head of the biggest bank, Bank Lumi, is an Arab citizen. So it's a pretty, a pretty, you know, big stretch. I don't know if you want to add anything else, Olga. No, I, I fully agree with everything that Anne said. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. But let me say this, though, actually, now that I think about it, I wouldn't just put it to America in terms of people not fully understanding the concept of nation states. Right. Um, I just put it that generally we seem to have this, this lack of a desire to learn and, and to, to go broader than what um, we are presented with on social media and what the cool thing is in terms of being an advocate for. So now it's human rights. And so anything that seems to smell of human rights or speak to human rights. And so in this instance, it's racial justice, racial justice at the expense of truth and at the expense of what is international norm, what is what is um, political norm is is sacrificed in relation to let's do this. Um, let's you know, let's further this particular narrative. Right. I think it's just a true double standard. And when we start talking about anti-Semitism, it's just leveling this charge at Israel and while ignoring the realities. Um, so let's go on to Gaza. Uh, maybe, Olga, you could talk about this. There's no Jews living in Gaza. Um, Amnesty even tweeted out some sort of weird definition yesterday about um, it's apartheid because there's deprivation and oppression going on. So I, I don't even that, that's like a whole new legal standard that they once again um, sort of come up with. So what is the truth in Gaza? And um, is Israel guilty of apartheid in Gaza? And if they are, wouldn't Egypt be guilty of the same thing? I mean, it's, it's bizarre. <laughs> so we have we have a ruling um, power in Gaza, and that is Hamas. And Hamas has, has been there since they actually were democratically elected. And once they were elected, uh, the other Palestinian leadership in Gaza at the time in the early 2000s was Fatah. And, and there was a bloody um, throwing out of Fatah from that area. Um, Gaza has been a recipient of hundreds of millions of rands. Um, rands, I'm, I'm speak, thinking in my South African brain, hundreds of millions of dollars, yeah. US dollars that were, that were funneled into, into Gaza for purposes of again, bettering the lives of Palestinian people. But then when the when Hamas um, takes this money and, and uses the money to construct underground tunnels, to construct these rockets, and so then there's a, for security reasons, um, a, there, there is, there's limitations on what can go in, again, for purposes of security, got nothing to do with the color of the skin, got nothing to do that we're talking right. about Palestinians or Israelis, then the world is an uproar. Meanwhile, Egypt has also got um, limitations in relation to movement of things between its border with Gaza. So 
in my opinion, they have to include Gaza in the conversation because if you don't include Gaza, if you don't include Gaza, then it doesn't give you as strong um, a, a claim in relation to the West Bank. And so we've just got to put all of it together. Right. Right. And, and I think that's, a, as I was mentioned before, and as you just said, Egypt, I mean, it's interesting if, if they are going to label Gaza, you know, living under apartheid, that they don't claim that Egypt is carrying out apartheid too, makes no sense since they have the same security measures. And there's not a single Jew living in Gaza, which clearly there's no racial segregation going on because uh, they, no, no Jews live there anymore. And not at all, but also, and, and it's important to keep reminding ourselves of it, they have their own rulership, their own right. people that are an authority over them. It's not the Israeli right. government that's an authority in Gaza. Right. It's Hamas, right. Palestinian. Right. right. So, and the last area is East Jerusalem. And the Palestinians there can acquire citizenship if they want. Um, otherwise, they live as permanent residents. Uh, but most, since most have not taken up getting citizenship. Can you describe if apartheid, you know, what this claim is on the people in East Jerusalem and if it would apply there? Yes, yeah, so they, they're they pretty weak actually in these reports when they talk about East Jerusalem um, because they know it's a weak claim. I mean, they're, I mean, I live, I live about a hundred meters from East Jerusalem. Uh, so I'm in West Jerusalem, but the, you know, what the green line is a few, you know, maybe a hundred meters from my house. Um, but but there's complete freedom of movement in Jerusalem, um, you know, so that takes away, you know, one of their main claims that, you know, it's when you, I mean, when you live, especially in the part of Jerusalem I live in, I mean, you know, we shop at the same place. I live like near a train track that's a walking path that if you walk in that path, I mean, it's Palestinians, Jews, you know, international uh, diplomats. Right. You know, walking in the middle of West Jerusalem on this like bike jogging path um, every day. It's like the most popular spot in Jerusalem. Um, and so you you don't you don't feel this disparity that they're talking about. And I, and I think because they have, um, you know, it's you can get citizenship. You Palestinians in Jerusalem are entitled to the same health care services that we're entitled to. Like it's paid for their health and their health care. Um, you know, so so again, it's it's sort of neglected. I mean, the interesting thing where they do talk about it is, you know, talking about the old city area, you know, where they're claiming it's occupied and it's settlements in the old city. So they're they're basically saying the Jewish quarter of the old city is occupied territory and right. and you know settlers living in the old city. I mean it's right. it's pretty outrageous, you know. Right. And the old city has been a majority Jewish since I believe the first census census was ever performed there in like the eighteen right. hundreds. Um speaking exactly. of this, the amnesty port specifically, like who are the people behind this report? And you know what sort of anti-Israel bias have they shown in the past? Yeah, I mean, they, so the interesting thing is they did not reveal who the actual authors of the report are. They, they had a couple senior officials come here, um, and, which was hilarious because, you know, they said, oh, uh, Israel is repressing dissent of anyone criticizing apartheid. Meanwhile, the senior leaders of Amnesty International were allowed to hold their press conference in an East Jerusalem hotel and accuse Israel of being apartheid. 
And, you know, no one raided the hotel. They were free to do their events and say all the horrible things they wanted to say. Um, so it was just kind of amusing. And they also had an Arab member of Knesset at their press conference speaking. And I guess failed to appreciate the irony of this, wow. of this event. Right. But um, apparently there, yeah. So the interesting thing is I think there was one person, I'm, I'm not 100% sure who, from, from um, Amnesty Israel's branch who helped write the report. But interestingly, there was a big debate within Amnesty Israel. Like many people in Amnesty Israel were very angry about this report and thought it was ridiculous. Um, there's a Times of Inter Israel interview with the head of Amnesty Israel where she calls the report ridiculous. Um, but again, I find it very telling they did not disclose the authors because you know, if, if we knew who the real authors were, I think we would it would make right. sense why right. they're writing what right. did. Well, as we and, see from this American yeah. director, I mean, I don't, right. I really don't know if he was part of writing it or not, but obviously his true colors have shown through on, exactly. on what he truly believes about it. And what about Human Rights Watch? Who, who is behind this and yes. you know, the people making the claim? So they they do list the authors of their reports. They they hired an outside law. I don't know if she's like a law student or some kind of grad student. I'm not I'm not quite sure. They yeah. hired some outside person to write the legal part. Um, and then they have um, they have a, a person on staff who's essentially a professional BDS activist. Um, so he helped write the report. Um, it's interesting when you hear the legal people talk about it versus him, they're not coordinated because oftentimes they they like contradict each other on what they're talking about. Yeah, because he's much more extreme than they than they are. So they didn't, right. they didn't get their messaging together. Um, but yeah, so he he actually used to um, he he was based here for a couple of years. And uh, his his visa, his work visa was not renewed because he was going around. He tried to get Israel kicked out of FIFA. He was responsible for the Airbnb debacle. Um, and he was just going around trying to do all these like, um, you know, all these BDS actions and attacks on the Israeli economy. So even though they had let him stay here for like three years or something, and also while he was challenging um, his visa non-renewal, um, you know, then then he had then he left the country. So I think he's in Jordan now. Right. But, right. Um, I mean, even the founder of of Human Rights Watch or, and the former chairman, Robert Bernstein, um, in 2009, he stated how Human Rights Watch has lost all perspective on Israel and that they yeah. need to return to its founding mission and, you know, reclaim its moral values. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, so the crazy thing about both of these groups, so Amnesty, for instance, in 2015, they were adopting their agenda for the year. They had 16 resolutions of things they were going to work on. One of those resolutions was in combating anti-Semitism in Britain. Out of the 16 resolutions, that is the only resolution that did not get passed, was the one combating anti-Semitism. Right, right. So that gives you... And they, a few years prior to that, they fired the head of their gender unit because she spoke out about their partnerships with Taliban supporters. Wow. Um, so she was she was fired. Um, and then Human Rights Watch, this is an amazing story. The guy who was in charge of writing the reports on Israel for about three or four years in the late 2000, like 2006 to 2009 was a closet Nazi fetishist. He had written a 450-page book on Nazi medals and had posted almost 8,000 times on Nazi memorabilia sites. And this was the guy they had writing the reports on Israel. 
So it, it seems hard to believe, but it, right. you know, the, this is in the New York Times. Right. People can look this up. I'm not making it up, you know. Right. Um, so again, this just kind of shows you the institutional culture that Right. Is, uh, I mean, it's, it's incredible that these institutions that have done such good in the past have just been turned into these sort of hate organizations under new leadership. And that brings me to my next question, Olga, like every, every we've been talking about, everyone understands apartheid as pure evil. So essentially, it was taking a word that equated to evil and just trying to make it stick on Israel, essentially calling Israel a Nazi country. I mean, essentially, that's what they're doing. I mean, that would violate IRA, that would, uh, you know, works to demonize, delegitimize and apply a double standard to Israel we've been discussing, so it would violate the 3D test. So is this charge anti-Semitic? Yes, a resounding yes. Right. That simple. <laughs> right. Um, and, and we actually have um, two, right, so coming up this year, we have two UN bodies that are going to, well, we have tomorrow Michael Link, but then aren't there two UN bodies? that are gonna declare Israel an apartheid state this year as well? Yeah, most likely. So in um, June, there's something called a commission of inquiry on the fighting last year, at last May. Um, but also this commission, which is now the a permanence commission in perpetuity, um, is going to be examining the root causes of the conflict and the way the language of this mandate is written, it's, it tracks very closely to the Human Rights Watch apartheid report. So it's, it's highly likely they're going to say that. And they appointed as their, um, as their chair, this woman, Navi Pillay, who um, in the past, she was the former High Commissioner of Human Rights, presided over Durban II in 2009 at the Human Rights Council, um, which invited Ahmed, um, uh, Ahmadinejad, right. the former head of Iran, to speak at this conference where he made all these crazy anti-Semitic comments. And, um, and she's, she's called Israel multi apartheid multiple times. So she's the head of this commission. She's South African. Um, so they're doing again, they're doing it deliberately. Right. You know, that's why they appointed her. And then the other one is a, this the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. The Palestinians filed a complaint against Israel. Um, and the first time this procedure was ever invoked and against the advice of the Office of Legal Affairs for the UN, which is highly unusual, they said, do not go ahead with this. The committee ignored that and is deciding to listen to this Palestinian complaint. And likely they will also claim that there's apartheid. Right. Um, so it's just an ongoing rolling out campaign from NGOs, oh, yeah. from organizations in the UN to continuously- And they all year. say to each other, you right. know? Right. Yeah. And Olga, um, you work with Club Z that works to educate young people. Right now, we're in the middle of Israel Apartheid Week happening on college campuses. Can you talk a little bit about that, just since it's literally, I believe, going on right now and what that is? So Israel Apartheid Week is a week that is dedicated to um, protesting what Israel is doing, how it is an apartheid state that deserves to be boycotted, divested and sanctioned. It brings to the attention of students how Israel is a colonizer state, how Israel um, is killing Palestinian babies and all of these evils that Israel is doing. Um, obviously the premise of it is a lie, um, but not only has it become a growing anti-Semitic Jew hatred fest, 
it's become very violent in some instances. Academic institutions are supposed to be places of discourse, supposed to be places of an exchange of ideas, supposed to be a place of um, understanding or trying to understand complexities of things. But we have this very aggressive binary um, week of events where very vocal Jew haters come. There is no opportunity oftentimes that is given to um, the pro-Israel uh, candidates during that week to also have a say. And so unfortunately for many, and one can understand that Jewish students, it's a very traumatizing week. The work of Club Z is to prepare young people in high school so that when they get onto campus and they're approached with these anti-Semitic events, that they're not going to be afraid, that they can stand right. up confidently with knowledge also having the skills to speak, to be able to call out the anti-Semitism, to be able to call out the double standards, to be able to call out the fact that you say that you're doing this so that you can help the Palestinian people. Meanwhile, the Palestinian people have been forgotten. This is all a political game. This is all a game right. of you know, money and corruption and all of that. And, and so ensuring that these teens also know what legal routes are available to them. Oftentimes they're thrown out of um, their dormitories, they're prevented from ascending into various positions of student leadership. And, and, um, and so Club Z ensures that they know what tools they have at their disposal, not only to respond and fight, but what I'm very much an advocate for is get on the offensive. You know, right. it's about time that we start showing and so discrediting these organizations such as Human Rights, such as Amnesty International. In fact, this year, st um, Students Supporting Israel on Campus has started a Palestinian Apartheid Week, which I think is brilliant, showcasing that actually the problem does not rest with regards to what Israel is supposedly doing in relation to the, Pal in relation to the Palestinian people. It's what Hamas and, and um, the, other, the double standards that are being applied, even with regards to Jews and Jews wanting to integrate and to live with their, with right. their um, their Arab counterparts. So going on the offensive and discrediting not only the messaging, but the messengers right. is important. I, uh, so, and that's, it makes a great point. You have in Lebanon, uh, Palestinians living there that are not allowed to work in 70 plus professions. I Correct. mean, if that's not apartheid. I don't know what is. That's discriminating for Palestinians that have been born there, living there their whole lives, second, third, fourth generations. The West Bank, and Gaza, for some reason, has to be Juden Rhine. There cannot be a Jew living there in any former, you know, if there is a Palestinian state eventually. And also, so, if we, if, sorry to interrupt you, if we know our history, the, the quote-unquote occupation of the West Bank only became an issue after 1967. Meanwhile, prior to 1967, Jordan was there. Jordan right. had illegally occupied that area and it wasn't an issue. Right. Um, you know, in, in the West Bank, Mahmoud Abbas is serving, what, his 18th year of a four-year term? Where's the Palestinian people's right to vote? So there's a lot of things that are going on in relation to real challenges of the Palestinian people. And we need to start going on the offense about that. Right. And I think that's this going to the audience questions. That was one of the ones we've seen a couple of times in here. And how do people push back against this outrageous claim? I think you did a good job of, of describing what people should do. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that. And then, Anne, maybe even talk about on like a political level, a country level, you know, government level, is there anything that, you know, people can do to, to push back against this stuff or, you know, force governments to do to push back on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's been really good in the amnesty with that, when the amnesty report came out is that so many leaders of countries came out and said, this is a ridiculous report. So right. I think it's really important when these things happen to contact your Congress people, uh, your local leaders to really speak out against it because it does make a difference. Also, when um, uh, Paul O'Brien, the head of Amnesty US, made those outrageous comments two weeks ago, um, you know, you had every Jewish member of Congress 
coming out with a letter denouncing him. And it's really important to show that type of support because, you know, tomorrow at the Human Rights Council and on Friday when it's the agenda item seven debate, we're going to be hearing from all the dictators of the world who are going to join in with the NGOs to make all these horrible smears. And so um, you need the moral countries of the world. And I know this is probably a mostly American audience, but if there are any Europeans listening to this, you need to go to your government officials and have them denounce it. There have been many European officials who have denounced it, but Europe needs to be a stronger voice because Europe does have a lot of influence in the more actually, I think, than the United States does in these in the UN and, and those types of bodies. And, and they really need to be a strong moral voice. Um, right. So that's something we would like to see is much more support from the Europeans. Right. And, and Olga, any other advice for anybody that when they hear this charge from a family, a friend, uh, a colleague, what they should respond with? The first thing that I say is that depending on how the charge is put forward is to appreciate the fact that this isn't a short term strategy. The other side has been in this game for for long, a very long time, but appreciating the fact that social media is instantaneous and oftentimes dinner meals don't go on for hours is first of all establishing what they mean by what they're saying. Oftentimes people use these terms and they have absolutely no understanding. Okay, what do you mean that Israel is about to say? Give me, give me an example. Don't just make this grand claim. Give me an actual real example of what apartheid is. And oftentimes you'll find that they're unable to give you an example. And oftentimes on the other end, if they do give you an example, one is able to, if you know your stuff, so you need to learn and study and, and, and get to grips with the weeds of it all, then there is an explanation as to this is what's going on. This is the context and that that does not equate um, what Israel is currently doing. So getting a full understanding of what the issue is at hand, um, asking for a, bringing it down to one example or two examples, so not making it this grandiose claim. Um, And then also for me, depending on how the question is put to me, especially if it's on social media, I'm like, I can already see you're a Jew hater. I don't have time for you. And I move on. And and also then discredit. That's one of the things that I've already said. I, I can't, in my opinion, emphasize that enough. It's about right. time that we start showing these people the fact that they're liars and they aren't about human rights and all these various things that they're saying. So they're bodies that cannot be shown to be credible and so should not have any influence in what we say is happening. Right. And I think, and we'll send this to everybody uh, in, a, in an email, I think sending along Olga's apartheid lie uh, article that she wrote, her essay, and then sending along the work Anne has done uh, countering these claims. I, and those, those documents, I think you can send them to people and they do a great job of just debunking this lie if they ever want to read something um, and, and gain a little more knowledge. L- one more question, last question, because I've seen this one also in the chat a, a couple of times. I guess it's, what well, co- I'll combine two. One, it says, what can be done about the Jewish groups like JVP and Beit Selim? And you have almost like these Jewish groups that are pushing this lie. And then there was another question about two former Israeli ambassadors to South Africa have also said that Israel is an apartheid state. What's the deal with those two ambassadors, Olga and one, maybe Olga, you can go first and Anne. And, and what, what do we sort of say to these groups? So my approach, especially being as a non-Jew, is when a question like this, because these are Jewish entities, is like, this is a family matter. Um, So I would, I would, you know, I don't understand why I have my thoughts as to it, but I I would let somebody that's part of the family uh, speak on that. We all have a crazy (laughs) uncle, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, in terms of the ambassadors... That, that's the thing. A lot of what people don't understand is a lot of this stuff is internal Israeli politics. Those two individuals are very highly disgruntled. 
failed right. politicians. Uh, the world has not gone their way um, and they are taking it out on their country, unfortunately, right. which is sad. But, you know, that they unfortunately, there is a sector of people in Israel that when when the uh, in 2000, when Arafat rejected the the um, at Camp David, the plan that Barack had offered for a Palestinian state, when Arafat rejected that. Basically, um, it decimated the Israeli left, and there's a sector of the Israeli left who, rather than unfortunately coming to grips with the fact that the Palestinians were not really acting as partners for peace, and you know it probably wasn't going to happen now, and the near utopia was not on the, in the on the horizon, unfortunately. Right. Um, they basically went a different direction and put all the blame on Israel for the breakdown of of the peace talks and want to punish the Israeli public for not adopting their policies and their right. failed plans, right. um, which, you know, and, and that's what the, who these people are. And, you right. know, and it's sad, I, you know, I feel bad that that's where they're living, you know, or that that's the world they're living in, you right. know, so, so upset and disgruntled. Um, and B'Tselem, a few years ago, there was a change in leadership. I think groups like B'Tselem in Israel are extremely important. You have to have human rights groups in every society holding the governments accountable. Unfortunately, B'Tselem um, had a change in leadership a few years ago. They were always extreme critics, and I have many, many beefs with them. I found a lot of their reporting not credible. They're political actors. Their political goal was to end the occupation. They don't tell you what that means. Does end occupation mean binational state? Doesn't mean the West Bank? They never tell you. But they have this change of leadership, and the current leader of B'Tselem has explicitly stated he no longer cares about the Israeli public. He wants the international community to punish the Israelis. Um, he has completely rejected us. He's not interested in what we have to say. He's right. completely outward looking now. Um, and he just thinks that we deserve to be punished for the absence of peace, you right. know, and all in Israel rather than the Palestinians having any role in this failure. Right. Um, so that, you right. know, and, and I would say that the head of Beit Selim in America is one of the founders of If Not Now. So, I mean, it's right. the BDS exactly. leaders that are ritually leading Beit Selim, so it's not surprising. And, you know, there's also, I think everybody should, this whole Dispelling the Mist series we're putting on should really listen to each episode, because I think this even goes to these Jewish groups and these Jewish organizations. What Ben Freeman was talking about with internalized anti-Semitism was like, what more can the Jewish people do? What more can we give? Can we give away our state? Can we give... And it, it's giving away everything. And that's sort of like this internalized anti-Semitism where it's the Jews' fault, the Jews' fault, the Jews' fault. And, you you know, and you, unfortunately, as we've learned through history, you can never give enough. And that is never the answer. Um, so anyhow, we are at the time. So thank you, everyone, for joining us today. This was an amazingly insightful conversation. Um, next week, we are joined by Hillel Neuer, who is the executive director of UN Watch a human rights NGO in Geneva. Hillel is the leading Jewish advocate speaking out against anti-Israel, anti-Jewish bias in the UN along with people like Anne. Um, so make sure to sign up for that conversation and all our discussions at ccfpeace.com, ccfpeace.com, where you can also donate, where you can also support our work. Uh, before we go, Anne and Olga, uh, where can people find you and your work on social media? Uh, we'll start with you, Olga. Several places, because I wear several hats. Um, I have a website, Olga, 
mw.com, olgamw.com. Um, on social media, it's Olga Mishra Washington. I am on Instagram as well as Facebook. I do not want to be on Twitter. I, I think that's just smart move. It's, it's a minefield. It's a minefield. And then with regards to Club Z, um, Club Z's uh, website is www.clubz.org. Great. And Anne? So on Twitter, I'm Ann Hertzberg14. Um, and our website is www.ngo/monitor.org. And you can find all of our writings there. Also, if you Google my name, um, you know, a lot of the right. stuff I've written. You will find Ann battling all those people Olga does not want to battle on Twitter <laughs> daily. Um, and she's a must follow on there because uh, she, she speaks truth to all these people. Um, anyhow, we hope to see everyone at our future events. Please stay safe. Once again, ccfpeace.com if you want to donate. Thank you, Ann and Olga. Take care, both of you. Thank you Thank so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.